Let's pray that during this week, that it'll be a very special week as we get ready to celebrate his birth. Beginning in verse 8. And in the same region there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch o'er their flock by night. <clears throat> and an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. And the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which shall be to all people, for today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in claws and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. God speaks to us in his word. Let's speak to him in prayer. Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts will be acceptable in thy sight during this very special time for us. And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. It's always amazing to me that Christians are and they are intimidated by the world because all in the world you've got to do is take any newspaper and look at the date in the upper right or left-hand corner and you'll see a testimony to the uniqueness and the notoriety and the significance of Jesus because the date on the paper this morning said 1994, and that means it was 1,994 years after Jesus. Now, he's pretty hard to ignore. Some people do a pretty good job of it. I heard recently about a Unitarian funeral, a funeral they held in the Unitarian Universalist Church. You know, they believe in some kind of cosmic spirituality. I'm not sure what kind of spirituality that is, and they're not sure either, but they believe in it, but it doesn't have Jesus. And so I asked the person who told me about the Unitarian funeral, I said, what do they do at the funeral? Obviously, they can't talk about the resurrection. They can't talk about heaven. They can't talk about hell. What do they talk about at a funeral? And this person said, well, the lady that was conducting it, she said that the deceased would live on in the life of his children. <laughs> now, I began to think about that, and I know there's some parents and some grandparents considering the lives that some of their children and some of their grandchildren are living. That wouldn't be good news to some of those. And then they told me something else they did. They sang two hymns. And I said, well, what kind of hymns do they sing at a Unitarian funeral? And one of them was Climb Every Mountain. 
I'm sure you know that. Beautiful, sentimental music, but the only trouble is, how do you know you're climbing the right mountain? How do you know you've climbed enough mountains? And then they had another hymn, and that one was, I'll do it my way. Frank Sinatra made that very popular. Again, the trouble is, how do you know that my way or your way is the right way? Now, against all of that, aren't you glad you don't believe in that junk? And against that, this Christmas stands the marvelous, amazing reality of Christmas, 750 years before Jesus. That's a long time. Micah said, And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means the least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. About 700 years before Jesus, Isaiah said, Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the people who walk in darkness will see a great light, and those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. About 250 years later, the prophet Zechariah wrote, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a coat, the fold of a donkey. Now, can you believe that hundreds of years ago in the Old Testament, and scholars have definitely proven that these things were written that long before Jesus. Can you believe that he was prophesied with such accuracy? And right before his birth, his mother Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, for he had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. And behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed, for the Holy One has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And right after his birth, the aged Simeon held him in his arms, and he said, I have seen the Savior you have given to the world. He is the light that will shine on the nations. And about 40 years after Jesus' death, the apostle John in exile wrote these words that explain why it all happened and what is the essence of what we believe, why we're not going to hell, which all of us deserve. John says, but as many as received him, to them gave he the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe in his name. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And the most amazing thing is that even with all of that, folks still miss it. They tell me on the day that Lincoln was born in Kentucky, uh, two neighbors were talking. 
And one of them said, any news down at the village, Ezra? And Ezra said, well, Squire McLean's gone to Washington to see Madison sworn in. Old Spellman tells me about this Bonaparte fella who's captured most of Spain. But what's new out here, neighbor? Well, nothing ever happens out here. There was a little baby born at Tom Lincoln's house last night. But you know, nothing interesting ever happens out here. Now, nobody could have told at that time the import of that little child being born in Tom Lincoln's log cabin. And anybody outside the manger at Bethlehem when Jesus was born could not have known what that baby would be and what that baby would do. And it's designed that way. God worked it out that way because it's not our way. We don't do it our way. We do it His way. And the glamour and the glitter of the world might be impressed with climb every mountain or I'll do it my way, but there's another song that, that's much older and much better known and will be here a long time after those two songs are gone. And it goes like this, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. And Paul told us why when he described his ministry, why God did it that way. He said to the Jews, it was a stumbling block. To the Greeks, it was foolishness. And then he wrote, but to those who are the call. Why are you sitting here this morning? Why 1900 years after this event that the world hardly took notice of? Why are you here worshiping the Lord Christ? It's because you are the call. It's because God supernaturally did something inside of you that brought you here. He worked his miracle in your life. And Paul writes, but to those who are the called, both the Jews and the Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than man and the weakness of God is stronger than men. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong that no man should boast before God. Now Paul said this, but years before he said it, Jeremiah the prophet said the same thing. Thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom. Jeremiah wrote, let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not the rich man boast of his riches. Let not him who boast, let him who boast, boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. You know, somebody has said that the longest distance is the distance between the head 
and the heart. The distance from knowing just some kind of cosmic spirituality and knowing the reality of the resurrected Jesus. But even if somebody didn't have the heart knowledge, just the facts of Jesus are absolutely amazing. Recently, Jean and Betsy Hughes visited here on Sunday. They go to a mega church in Atlanta now. It's the Mount Perrin Church of God, and they have a 10-talent preacher named Paul Walker. And I thought you'd be interested in Paul Walker's description of the one that you're going to worship in a new way this week. He said he was born in poverty and was reared in obscurity. He did not travel extensively. Only once did he cross the border of the country where he lived, and that was during his childhood. His life's work was contained in a place not as large as an ordinary state. But in infancy, he startled a king. In childhood, he puzzled the doctors. In manhood, he walked on the sea and calmed the raging storm. He never got a degree, yet he had more students than all the colleges and became the subject of the world's greatest textbook. He never drafted a soldier, marshaled an army, or fired a gun. Yet he had the greatest army that ever marched any time or any place in the world. Today, one day in every seven, the world stops and worships him. He is a perfect man and perfect God and perfect to those who trust in him. To the artist, he is the altogether lovely. To the architect, he is the chief cornerstone. To the astronomer, he is the bright and morning star. To the baker, he's the bread of life. To the banker, he's the inexhaustible treasure. To the biologist, Jesus Christ is the source and center of all life. To the builder, he's the sure and tried foundation. To the doctor, he is the great physician. To the educator, he is the straight and narrow way. To the farmer, he is the sower and Lord of the harvest. To the florist, he is the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valley. To the geologist, he is the rock of ages. To the horticulturist, he is the true vine. To the newspaper editor, he is the good tidings of great joy. To the orth orthopedist, he makes the lame to walk. To the optician, he makes the blind to see. To the physicist, he knows our frame. To the psychologist, he knows our thoughts. To the preacher, he is the word of God. To the sculptor, he is the living stone. To the student, he's the source and center of all truth. To the saved, he is the keeper. And to the sinner, he is the savior. I will never forget my first trip to Winston-Salem. I was in college. My journey from head to heart had not begun, and I was in Winston-Salem with a college fraternity brother for a good time. And you would have a good time in Winston-Salem, I'm going to tell you. And I had one. And the next morning, I had an alcohol and a moral 
hangover. But I wanted to keep my good boy image. So we were staying with his folks. And his folks suggested that we get up and go to church on Sunday morning. And so I tried to act enthused, as enthused as I could. And so we went down to church. Now they went to Centenary Methodist. And on the way down there, we passed First Presbyterian Church. And I didn't know why then. But for some unexplainable reason, I said, wait a minute, there's Presbyterian Church. I'm a Presbyterian. Why don't y'all just let me out here? And then you can pick me up after church. So they let me out. And I walked by myself in the First Presbyterian Church, and Dr. Julian Lake was preaching. And when I walked in the door, they gave me a bulletin. And on the bulletin, it had his sermon topic. And the topic was, what will you do with Jesus? And in the sermon, he talked about that Thomas doubted Jesus. And Peter denied Jesus. And Judah, Judas betrayed Jesus. And the woman with the issue of blood, she touched Jesus. And every time he said that, he looked right at me and said, what will you do with Jesus? And I felt like the lowest form of animal life in that church that morning. And I sunk down in the pew. And mercifully, after it was over, I was still alive. And I walked out that church and tried to avoid everybody. But I knew one thing. I knew that I might doubt and I might deny and I might betray Jesus and I might never touch him. But Dr. Lake showed me that morning that I could not ignore him. And neither could some other folks because Charles Lamb said if all the illustrious men in history were assembled and Shakespeare should enter their presence, they would rise to do him honor. But if Jesus Christ should come in, they would fall down and worship him. Napoleon said, I know men, and I tell you that Jesus was more than a man. Comparison is impossible between him and any other human being who ever lived because he is the Son of God. And when they asked Emerson why Emerson did not include him in his list of representative men, Emerson said, for one simple reason, Jesus Christ is not representative. He's not just a man. H.G. Wells wrote, Christ is the most unique person of history. No man can write a history of the human race without giving first and foremost place to the penniless teacher of Nazareth. Beloved, that's the amazing reality of Christmas. And we get so caught up in the tinsel and in the wrappings and in the hurry we forget that within these walls we are custodians of the greatest truth the world has ever known and the only thing that makes any sense 
out of life. And you know, I think once each year at Christmas, we need to get an inoculation of joy and of victory and of glory and of magnificence because we belong to Him. Can you think what a privilege it is to bear His name? How do you feel when somebody says, are you a Christian? How do you feel when you bear that name? You don't have to be brainy and you don't have to be strong and you don't have to be rich and you don't have to be cultured to experience Him. All you have to do is give yourself to Him. Years ago, I was in a church in Tennessee and I talked with a man in deep grief because he had just lost his wife. And it was Christmas time. And that made it even worse. And he began to tell me about her. He was a big, burly, outdoor type man. Not very pretty. And he told me about meeting his wife. She had been the homecoming queen in college. She had done some modeling because of her uh, exceptional beauty. And he was at a friend's house one night. And he met her. And he talked to her. And he tried to get away from her as quick as he could because he was so nervous. And after that evening that he met her at his friend's house, he thought of little else but her. He never called her. He was sure that she would not be interested in him. And several weeks after that, he was talking to one of his friends. And his friend said, do you remember so-and-so? And he called her name. He said, you met her at my house. And I saw her the other day, and she said she was disappointed that she had not heard from you again. Well, as quick as he could get to one, he got to a telephone and he called her and he stumbled all over himself. But he finally asked her to go out with him and he was absolutely amazed when she said that she would. And I'm going to tell you from that time on, he made a career out of their, out of their courtship. He took her to the best places. He gave her the best gifts. Nothing was too good for her. And finally, although he never understood it, she agreed to marry him. And they got married and they settled down and they had a wonderful life together, but he would just continually shower her with affection and gifts and all of this. And finally, reality kind of kicked in. And one night they were sitting in the den and she said, honey, I really appreciate it. But to tell you the truth, it's a little embarrassing. And I want to know why are you always giving me all of these things? Why are you always treating me the way you do? Why? And he didn't answer her for a little while. And then he said, because I just have to tell you, I've never felt worthy 
of you. And she took him in her arms. And she said, honey, I don't want you to be worthy of me. I just want you to love me. And you know, that's what Jesus says to you at Christmas. He says, you don't have to be worthy. You don't have to be perfect. Maybe you feel, I hope you don't, but maybe you feel like I did in the sanctuary of First Presbyterian Church that Sunday years ago. And maybe when you leave here today, you just kind of like to slink out and not see anybody because your sin is so real to you. And try as you can, you can't clean up your act like you want to. And maybe you look around you and you think, well, all these other people have done that. I wish I could do that. And in the midst of all that, God says that he so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whosoever, and that includes you, and that includes me, whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And you know why he did it like that? Because that's his way. Father, we just thank you. Lord, we have never felt worthy. Father, we think we've got to make up or undo or prove. And oh, Father, we thank you that you don't want us to do that. You want us to realize that you had to die for those things that have hurt us so much. And so, Father, we come today and we ask that we might have a new understanding of Christmas and the best present that we will ever unwrap is Calvary. And we praise you, Lord, and we glorify your name for while we were yet sinners, Jesus died for us. And oh, Father, we pray that in this Christmas time, everybody we meet, everywhere we go, everywhere we are, that we might herald that most unique person and that the world might understand how they can do it your way. And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.